You know, for as long as I can remember, I've always loved music. When I was a kid, my dad and I would go riding in his yellow pickup truck. He'd bring cassette tapes over the albums that he had taped from home. The Beach Boys, The Rascals, The Beatles, what have you. I didn't know the words, I didn't know the songs themselves, but something about the music just drew me in from the start. I loved it. I wanted to be a part of it. As I got older, grew up, middle school, high school, listening to bands like The Clash or Big Army Dynamite, Living Color, Soul Asylum. Some of those bands had come and gone by then, but man, they were the gospel to me. I would sit up in my room with the headphones on for hours, listening to the same song over and over again, trying to figure the words out. If they had lyric sheets, I'd read them too, backwards and forwards, trying to figure out how it all came together. What did it mean? Of course, I wanted to do it too. I wanted to write a song that would change someone's life. I learned the guitar, tried to write a few tunes, but man, it just didn't work for me. I couldn't do it. I still can't do it. I don't get it. So here you are in the middle of a pandemic. I've got lots of time on my hands, so I thought, maybe I'll learn how to write a song this time. Maybe I can finish one. But you know what? Even though I'm a lot older now, I still can't do it. And it's really driving me crazy, because it seems so easy, but it's not. Those who make it seem so effortless, I don't know. They got a talent that I clearly don't have, and I admire the hell out of it. So instead of writing songs, I decided to talk about songs. I'm going to start a podcast, and I'm going to call it Four Songs. So here we go. My name is Rob. I started this podcast called Four Songs. The idea behind it is to talk to singer-songwriters about four of their songs that I like, or they like, and talk about it. How did the songs come together? What do they mean to them? What inspired them? How did it all work in the end? For our first episode, we get to talk to Scott Miller. Scott's a singer-songwriter based in the Shenandoah Valley, Virginia. He's been at this for a while. In the mid-90s, he was a lead singer for a band called the V-Roys, a hard-rocking, loud, hard-living, roots-rock band based in Knoxville, Tennessee. The band was young, they were raw, but there was a pure energy and a genius in the songwriting that was clearly evident. In fact, Steve Earle, yep, the Steve Earle, the songwriting legend Steve Earle, picked up on it too. He signed the band to his record label in the mid-90s. The band didn't last too long. They recorded two albums and a live one, and then they called it quits. But Scott was undeterred. He was going to make it on his own. And he has. Scott's solo career started in 2000. He's recorded seven albums, a couple of EPs, some live ones, and lots and lots of songs that just keep coming. What I love about Scott's songs is that they're quiet, they're earnest, they're honest. There's a sense of urgency in all of them, but it's subtle. You have to hear it. You have to listen to it. Thankfully, Scott gave me some time on one of the coldest days of the year in May, during a pandemic, from his family farm in Augusta County, Virginia. So, without further ado, hey, Scott, how you doing? Hey, Rob, thanks for calling. What's going on? Again, I appreciate you taking some time to chat with me today. So this is our an inaugural podcast, and we're going to be talking about songs and songwriting. I've got four of your songs that kind of run over your solo career, starting in 2001 with Highland County Boy, and then we're going to wrap up with Lo Siento, Spanishburg, West Virginia, which you've done a couple of different ways on a couple of different albums. I picked these four because they're all a little different, and some of them stand out more than others, I think. But just in terms of overall your writing, what is it you're trying to do, trying to reach, and who are you trying to identify with? I like story songs, songs that, or songs that go from a point A to a point B. And songs don't have to be that way, but that's what I like. Louie Louie's one of the greatest songs ever written, but it goes, it's not, it goes nowhere. So, mm-hmm. But I like those kind of story songs. And that's why I use history because the story's already there. So I'm trying to go from point A to point B, find an emotion or something to invoke that I identify with that moves me and then try to write it as simply as I can to 
make somebody else understand or feel that at the same time and do that in two and a half, three minutes, have a catchy chorus and hopefully make a living. That simple. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously you, you, you learn from your elders and other songwriters who have some of the ones that you've tried to, to live up to and emulate. I still want to be John Prine. So came to him right when I was 12 or 13 and I was already into songwriters by then. And I really, I, I went the progression you're supposed to. I think I started like Woody Guthrie to Bob Dylan and then to John Prine, uh, all in the space of, you know, five years or whatever, when I first started wanting to write songs and, and started to play guitar. That, that was, that's the pinnacle for me, sort of what he did at his best, mm-hmm. you know, but I, I used, you know, I tour a lot with Patty Griffin and she makes it look so easy. Like John Prine made it look so easy and it's not because to write like John Prine, you got to be John Prine. And, and he was a one in a million, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with the singer and songwriter Ian Hunter from. Yeah. Well, yeah. So he has this blog that he updates with takes Q and A's from fans and, because I've often wondered, like, why is it that certain bands and songs that I've liked since I was 12 or 13 that I still like now? And someone asked him a kind of a the same question on his Q&A, and he basically said, what sticks with you when you're young is what sticks with you forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I can't remember what writer that said this. Well, I don't think it was Robert the Pen Warren, but it was one of those fugitive and agrarian writer said like you get enough angst in your teenage years to write for the rest of your life you know when you're open to that stuff it's like your first hit of any drug when it when it hits you you're you're going for that chasing that dragon the rest of your life boy i know it (laughs) uh well let's uh but i always like songs now let me say this like you know my dad he's 90 now and he was never a professional musician but he played trumpet in big okay. band eras and he will you know he will tell you that he set in with les brown and but he played and he was good and so he was always listening to that stuff and a lot of sinatra and ella fitzgerald and it doesn't get much better than those two but what always stuck with me to that stuff even though i didn't appreciate that music until later in life was the song was a, a good song a clever song some mm-hmm. good wordplay and something that you know invoked something and so it was always there in me i think yeah I'm not saying I'm any good at it, and then I've, I'm at a point now where I question whether, man, I really chose the wrong career path, but who knows? Well, you are good at it. You're great at it, and I want to get to a couple, couple tunes here. So starting with Highland County Boy, which is on your first solo album. I guess your, your first proper solo album, if you right. can. But So this came out in about 2001, Thus Always to Tyrants. So the lyrics yeah. here, they're, they're pretty straightforward. Young man watches his brothers go off to war and, and die, right, in the Civil War. Yeah. And toward the end, he seems to kind of question whether it was all kind of worth it. So what what led you to this? Two, two things mainly. One, like my whole life, growing up in the South, where my great-great-grandfather, him and his four brothers were all from Highland County. Uh, and we have... Uh, of my great great grandfathers, we have all his letters from the war that he sent back and fought almost the whole war. He was wounded in Chancellorsville, came home for a little bit, married my great great grandmother, then went back. And wow. three of his brothers were killed. He was, he eventually, according to the records, he died of his wounds. 
But we still have, you know, his letters. We have his bedroll, his sword. Um, he was in the cavalry. What else do we have? They had his gun forever, but I think another side of the family took it, and then it got sold. But also in Virginia, you just grow up around that stuff. And that it's not like a, a lost cause or anything, believe me. But it was, it's just there, you know. There, there's, there were still relics and trenches, and you kick up stuff in our own woods on the farm. I can find relics, you know, where, where units had stayed there over one winter, I think in 1862 maybe. So, and my grandmother, who still remembered her grandfather, I was that close to it. Wow. And she would always, you know, if she ever talked about it, it was like, you know, never a lost cause thing, but more of like, you know, that war, and in his letters, he always talked about it, it was such a calamity and that was put upon them. It wasn't, you know, uh, it was like this sense of duty. And back then your state was your country. And the whole thing was a calamity. And they didn't talk about it afterwards, you know. There will be no they there weren't they weren't flying any Confederate battle flags or any of that crap. It was like it was done, it was over, let's move on. And then with that, sort of in, in my mind and that history and that family history in my mind and those letters in my mind, I read Russell Banks Cloud Splitter. That that's where the image of the 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 rebels and the Yankee soldiers coming up from their graves and dancing. Okay. They'll dance around like old John Brown on the long end and, of a rope. And I've always, in all my history stuff and some of my Civil War stuff, and I've, I've got, you know, some World War II songs too and stuff like that, I've always tried to write from a perspective of most wars. Most wars, maybe all wars, are rich man wars. Mm -hmm. So everybody else is a pawn. It doesn't matter which side you're on. And I've always tried to write from that. There's no judgment one way or the other uh, of of which side was right or which side was wrong. It was a calamity. It always, it, all wars are crimes. All wars are crimes. And that's that's where I sort of come from, and that's where I sort of came from on that. And with the biblical idea of, man, I'm going way deep into this that I don't need to, but just the, the whole idea that, you know, it's a calamity put upon you, like from original mm. sin. Uh, how long did it take you to, to write this? I wrote that one in like an, a night. I don't know. That one really? just sort of came. Yeah, I was living in this lake. No one in the lake house. It was a cinder block, spider filled, nasty place out in uh, Blunt County, Tennessee. And, it was a dry county. I'd have to drive into town to get beer at night. And I think I started that like right after dinner one night and drove in, got some beer and, and on the drive, had, had it in my head finished and came back and that, and it was done. Wow. And that recording I did in, um, in my house. It's on the album. One Malvern Hill and after making it through that archer he took ill. Charlie's laws were not confirmed when they fought at Cross Keys. The last sight that they had of him was crawling through the weeds. A letter said a shower of lead had hit the men down low. And they danced around like old John Brown on the long end of a rope. So what I like about that is he's just kind of matter-of-factly saying what happened. As if he's kind of talking to a 
an elder reporter or historian? I think that comes from the letters and the tones of the letters of my great-great-grandfather, where he was never like, well, in the very beginning, there is one sentence where he goes, we won't be subjugated. But other than that, all his letters were very biblical, uh, Bible quoting, uh, just talking about how it was a calamity. And he was reporting back to, I guess it was then his girlfriend, but my eventual great-great-grandmother, how, you know, the list of, of his four brothers, her brother was with them, and whoever else was from that area who was in the company. And he would always have a paragraph in there of like, you know, such and such, you know, it, Archer was his brother. And he's like, this was at, I think, Second Manassas, and they got overrun. And he grabbed all his stuff and ran. And he goes, luckily, I got, you know, I got the packet of letters of yours. And, uh, but all I saw, I just saw Archer was like crawling off through some weeds under heavy fire. And I didn't see him for a while. Uh, it was all very matter of fact and, and biblical were the, just the tones of those letters. That's, that's where I think that comes from. Yeah. And then kind of toward the end when I think he's questioning, as, as we talked about earlier, the, the, the sacrifice of it all. A spark of plot, a rock is now the only fight I've known. And the songs of victory that they sang don't help the seeds I've sown. Tis a wickedness and self-conceit that is the dane of man. The farmer and the land compete. It's God's first reprimand. What really jumped out at me, I think the first time I ever saw you alive was at the 3rd and Leslie or 3rd and Lindsay? In 3rd, 3rd and Lindsay in Nashville? Yeah, it was like a Sunday night. Uh, my friend and I just happened to be there and we were kind of on a road trip and we, we knew the B-Roys and we saw you were in town. We're like, let's go. And... Um, because what jumped out at me was most of this album and your earlier stuff, it's loud, it's, it's rock and roll, whereas this is you and a harmonica and a fiddle and your foot. Yeah. yeah. It's almost like it's the boldest of all the songs on that album. What kind of led you to that stripped down nature? I don't know, man. That's just how I heard that one in my head. And uh, it was like, you know, you get lucky sometimes if you have a song that does that, that just comes to you like that. And, and the images just came to me and it just came down. I can remember, I mean, I edit, edit, edit songs. I work on them forever. They're never done, you know? And I just remember writing that. There's a couple of songs that are like that that I've written. That it just was like, Oh, here it is. Write it down. We're going to jump ahead. Cause I could talk about this song for forever, but I'm um, <laughs> on a roll from Citation, 2006. The reason why I, I picked this one is because, you know, you were talking earlier about how the songs have a beginning and an end, A to B. Yeah. In my mind, this one leaves you hanging. Yeah, because, it does. <laughs> yeah, that's what I like about it, because that's why I, I picked this one, because it, 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 to me, the, the subject matter, the lyrics, the rhythm, it just really is a little bit, I mean, musically, it's kind of along the lines of what we've done, but the lyrics are just, I feel like, going a different direction, and it seems like it's about a guy who isn't really sure if he's just in a rough spot or if he's just cursed from the start. I mean, what's, what was sort of the inspiration behind this one? Well, two things. One was uh, me and my buddies at that time, a friend of mine had, had, he and his wife had purchased this old building downtown Knoxville, old abandoned old glass factory building. And we would go down there on Thursday nights 
of course, you know, there were no windows in it. It was a big concrete brick structure. And on Thursday nights, we'd play poker up in the top floor of that building. And if it was 13 degrees, then we were up there and we played, you know. So uh, and we would get very high. And I was still drinking then. And it was, oh, it was just, it was, I looked forward to it every week, my Thursday mm -hmm. night. And uh, it was as, it was close to church as I got at that time, dealing with cards and the odds and luck. And I remember I used to like talk to the, we had like a, a single light bulb above this table in the middle of this empty factory. And I would talk to that light, you know, <laughs> like I need, oh, I need, you know what I need? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I need <get> some grace, <laughs> stuff like that. So the, the card playing was going on my mind. And, and with that, I would say, please don't laugh at this, but more of like Robert Hunter and some of the Grateful Dead lyrics. And you know how much he wrote about card playing mm -hmm. all the time. And so I was sort of toying with that too, like wanting to do something in that vein. Yeah. And, yeah that makes and it's, it's probably more, there's, there's another song where I've like tried to be right like Robert Hunter once, but uh, nobody would ever guess. And then on top of that was a, you know, that was for my first record. I just left Sugar Hill and started my own label. And it was bad time, not bad times, but uncertain times. And I was rolling the dice or, or you know, taking chances. And I, sort, I think that's where that came from. Does that yeah, make any sense? Yeah, let's play a quick snippet of the beginning. Here we go. Deal those cards and rather be quick about it This next hand is gonna tell Whether it's just hard for me to win or Whether I was born to fail. I just love that line because it's just the guy, you, you kind of feel bad for the guy because he doesn't know, is it just me or am I gonna, am I gonna make it? Yeah, yeah, I know, that's where I was. You know, like, is this what I'm supposed to do or or not? And I can't remember if this was before or after that. I met this guy. I was doing a show in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And I had TV that afternoon that was bizarre. And the other guy on the, the television show was this motivational speaker. speaker. And I remember he said to me, he goes, Scott, if you, if you could guarantee that you would not fail, what would you do with your life? and do that and that, that always stuck with me hmm. yeah because I, I mean to me the next line too kind of plays it pretty bare here do my best to try to be in front about my luck's running pretty cold and if i stayed any longer i'd be doing time i got a room man i got a room. that's the one i like if i stayed any longer i'd be doing time yeah i like that line yeah. Uh, and that's probably something I thought about when I was playing poker with those guys. A lot of that. So what happens to the guy at the end? Because he talks about he puts all his cards on the table and the, those who, let me try to cue it up here. So was that bluff that never lived to tell about it. I'm letting everybody know. I'm going to bet everything that I have to. Yeah, so that 
I'm putting everything on, on the line tonight. He's laying yeah, it all yeah. out there. I think that's where I was, you know, starting my own label and everything with my career. And I think it is, it, it, nobody would believe me, but I think it's probably one of my more hopeful songs where he, he just believes that it's going to come. I just believe that it was, I was doing what I was supposed to do and that the odds were good. It was going to work for me. Mm -hmm. The fates were going to work. Fate. Fate. Yeah. yeah. Now, did this take you out to write or was this, this just come right out of you? I think I worked on that one. That album, that was the album I did with Jim Dickinson, the okay. producer in Memphis. And I worked, I wrote, I, that album had to grow on me, I think, uh, because I think there's some really good writing on that record. I didn't really know it at the time. I was working, you know, I had a deadline and I was, you know, time, the studio time was scheduled and I was, and it was like, I was just going in, to, I had a little apartment in Knoxville that I rented separate from the house and I didn't have TV or radio or anything in there. And so I could rent that for a couple of months and just put a chair and a table and a guitar and my typewriter in there and go in there every day and work hmm. and write. And, uh, I remember Jim Dickinson saying, just, uh, just get some cocaine, go to hotel room like Randy Newman would. <laughs> <laughs> So I didn't do that. I just yeah. went in to work every day. And, um, you know, there were some good songs came out of there. Yeah. Of that, that it's session. Interesting you call it work. I mean, is it? Yeah. I mean, well, I know it's, it's, it's work. It's, it's just because you know, a guy like me, I'd just like, oh, you just pick up guitar and it all comes out. And it, I've tried that. It doesn't work for me. No. <laughs> those those are, like we lot. talked about with Highland County Boy, that previous song, man, those are rare that it comes like that. You know, uh, I've probably told you this before, too. I mean, Steve Earl would always say, you know, use your eraser into your pencil more than you use the pointy into your pencil. You know, everybody can, you can come up with a chorus or maybe a good line, but the rest of that is work to make it seem like it just came to you, you know, and to make mm -hmm. it flow and make sense. Like Loudon Wainwright does. He's, I think his stuff sounds so effortless and, and just absolutely flows, his songs do, but I bet he works really hard at them. Well, I, as it's interesting, I think it's a great uh, transition to Claire Marie from For Crying Out Loud. Okay. I got a feeling that this one to me, even though it's, you talk about using the, the eraser more than the, the pencil, I mean, I think that's sort of what you're going for here is less is more in terms of lyrics. And to me, I, when I hear it now, I think this was probably one of your hardest songs to write. Just getting the, the rhythm down and the, the imagery in, in as few words as possible. That one, I had another apartment <laughs> that I rented, <laughs> you know, when it was going to be album time and would go in there. It was like an old garage apartment behind an old house in, in the Fort Sanders area, Knoxville. And I don't think I had to work that hard on that one. I love the sound of that track. Michael Webb produced that record, the keyboard player, Michael Webb. And um, that's one of my favorite tracks on there. Jeremy Pennebaker just plays awesome guitar on it. And, um, you know, that was here. This was an argument. I was not an argument a discussion. I was having not long ago with some friends, uh, about which Jerry Lee Lewis album his, he's got those live recordings. There's like the star club recording. And then there's the greatest live show on earth recording. And 
oh, that album is so awesome. I love live album. You know, I was going for the killer on that one. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah. You mentioned the keyboard was your producer because he really hits those keys on this one. Oh yeah, man, he's he's great on that one. He knew what he was doing. Yeah, so I'm gonna okay. play a couple of lines here just so folks can hear the the, the genius and the, the less is more in, in terms of the lyrics here because you can. It's so easy to imagine what's going on, but to put it in. What was the goal here? Two words, one syllable each. But yeah. You know exactly what's happening. So here we go. Use car, I just mouth. Lead sled, lamb yacht. Eight valve, big block. Red light, don't stop, I do declare. Clamory. Yeah, we know what's going on there. <laughs> We're <in> a red light. <laughs> Don't stop. Yep. Yeah. Man. Well, one of the things that I've always liked about your songs, and I, I mean, I know you talked about you're writing for brevity too, but writing to be funny, I think, is really hard. And, you know, my guy for that is Roger Miller. You know, we've talked about my love for Roger Miller, which is knows no bounds. And he just like Hank Williams could blend that humor and, and heartbreak in the, in line without it being one or the other. You know what I mean? Just mm -hmm. seamless Roger Miller, the last word in lonesome is me, you know, play that song and just it's like, Holy cow. Or, you know, Hank Williams, um, about his little black book, going to mm -hmm. keep it till it's covered with AIDS, going to write your name down on every page. Um, I don't know. Just that kind of stuff. They can blend. Yeah. So the last song I want to talk about is on your most recent album. It's actually been on a couple of your your albums, uh, Lucy and So. <laughs> milk it, it, milk it, milk it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I just, I love this song. I, I just, the way the music, but what I really like about this song is the way you sing it. The almost staccato kind of boom, 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 because you, you know, when you sing along to it, you don't realize, man, you got to catch your breath at some point in there. And Yeah, it's a tough one. Yeah. <laughs> so you did this a number of different ways. Uh, can you kind of talk about which version you liked the best? Because you had that YouTube version that came out, I don't know. That was the first thing, yeah. And this was right when I was starting my own label, too, and was, you know, and I, I sort of had this idea. I was trying to raise money to make a record. And I was half thinking that, why couldn't I have one song if, if I sold it for 99 cents and a thousand people downloaded it? Well, then there's, there's some money. Mm -hmm. And it didn't work out that way. So that's why there was that original YouTube version, which I think I prefer because it's got dirtier lyrics and I made yeah. a video for it. Yeah. Which at that point I had just got like a video camera for Christmas or something, or my birthday maybe. And, uh, and I was going to town with that thing and, and using the, using the iBook and, and making just ham fisted videos, but I loved it. Honest to God. And then Raina and I recorded it, the proper recording for codependence, which was just an EP. Yep. And then the version on ladies auxiliary is that same version, just with bass overdubbed. Okay. So the secrets out. I milked that song three times. Yeah, well, it's a great one. That, well, uh, I'm older and I just don't write as much anymore. So, you know. <laughs> so 
So what was the influence for just the way you're you're pacing the syncopation of, of the lyric of, of the words? Because it's a little different. Like I said, it's you kind of have to catch your breath when you get through a verse. Dylan, there's, there's a you know, the, subterranean yeah. homesick blues or something like that. I was doing a lot of drugs and drinking back then too. So that may have been how, how I heard it in my head. <laughs> you know, that was that was all written near the end uh, before I had to get sober. So uh, that may have been part of it. Cause there's that song was from a basement apartment that I rented over in North Knoxville. That was, yeah, that was not pretty back then, but I had, there was another song I wrote that is sort of sounds the same uh this song i wrote called how am i ever gonna be me okay and it's 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 on uh big big world yep. and their songs are written about the same time and it's just like a lot of words a lot of words in a little time you know mm-hmm. and you gotta space i gotta space them out in the set list much less uh yeah. between leases because they're they're sort of my brain was really firing hard back then so for the Lyrically on this one, let's we'll play a couple snippets from it, but it's pretty clear what you're you're painting a pretty dire picture here of a what sounds like a pretty dying town in, in West Virginia where football the military are, are king. Well, the TV's off because nothing on. All the hometown fans are in the stands since the team won state because the coach was great and then they hired him down in Peterstown. But he didn't win. Now he's back again. The next batch of kids could not commit. They were big enough, but not that tough. I thought the single wing was just a passing thing. I guess the will to win is all forgotten. When old times there are oxycotton, Luciano. And I think I was using Spanish bird. One, because I mean, the, the town name itself lent itself to the song, but I was using it, you know, more of like where I am in Swope, uh, which they had just built a bypass through our county. Our county is Augusta County, Virginia. It's the largest county in the Commonwealth. It has the largest cow to people ratio of any county east of the Mississippi. It's very rural county, and they built a bypass. Um, and now there's housing developments springing up, you know, around here and a lot of Northern Virginia retirees are moving down and buying up, not just whole farms or just five acre plots and putting cow palaces on them and it sort of drives me nuts. And so that's really what I was railing against there. My first real protest song. Writer came from a magazine and wrote the whole town up for the AARP. Called it number one place to retire. So the rich folks came and the taxes got higher. With their healthy hair and their perfect spouses, they built these mansions and big cow palaces. And the feet and the elite were all walking around with their noses up as they looked down on the people born who could not afford to live in their own town no more. Lo siento. Even renamed it Spanish Trace, West Virginia. Well, I like the line in the beginning. Yeah. Small town and when old times there are oxycotton. Now that's a, that's a play on a, on a lyric. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, in Dixie, but pretty devastating how how opioids, especially in West Virginia, man, they it is bad, bad. On the one hand, there's a whole segment of population that have been ignored, and boy, are they rearing their ugly heads now. But yeah. it, 
it's this here's my theory to save america we're gonna just teach two things civics and driver's ed that's it <laughs> that's all that public schools are going to be responsible for teach them how the country works and how to vote and how to drive and we would be much better off anyway yeah that's my, that's my take for today so that was all i had for these songs but um what's what's next for you well the farm's keeping me busy I, i've my parents uh, my dad is 90 my mom's 86 she'll be 87 here in a little bit they just moved out of the farmhouse where i grew up and so on the one hand i'm anxious to get that house cleaned out and rewired and replumbed and everything's gonna have to be done to it and move in there and take it over that's sort of the between that work on the farm I've, but i've set up a room in there in my old bedroom uh there's some angst up in there and i've been writing so i've got a few songs that are look sound promising i got the last decent song i wrote was probably a year ago so i haven't recorded it yet so, you know, we'll just see. I, I don't know what touring is going to be like because that, that's, that's how I make my living. It, yeah. You know, you, people don't buy records anymore. And uh, basically, like, like Hayes Carl says, man, I feel like a T-shirt and koozie salesman because the way you go out and make money is to sell merchandise because people really don't buy CDs live. I used to play to 50 people and, and, and sell 50 CDs. Now I play to, you know, maybe – 500 people and sell 50 CDs. So if that, so I, I just don't know what the future holds. I keep threatening to get a job with the school board and drive a school bus or, or work at the funeral home. Well, I greatly appreciate uh, your time today, Scott, and oh, I look forward to, to hearing more. And thus ends our first episode of four songs. Thanks again to Scott for giving me so much of his time and thank you for listening. We'll be back for more.